Well, Hosanna. It's Palm Sunday, guys. Hosanna. Um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, when I was preparing to preach this sermon, I was not exactly sure what I was going to do because, you know, a typical Palm, ser- sermon, Palm Sunday sermon is about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey and everyone's waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. Um, and so that's, that's the thing that comes to mind for me. Um, but there's also another image about Palm Sunday that I didn't realize um, as, I was re- as I came to prepare for the sermon. Um, I just, I was reading through Matthew and it struck me how Palm Sunday seemed to just be sort of an introduction, I guess you could say. Um, almost like a blip in the radar. It was important and it's and we'll see how it is extremely important and what it means. Um, but there is a lot more going on. Um, I know the image of the donkey and Jesus riding on it, the image of the palm branches, these are all things that come to mind to us. When we think about Palm Sunday and it's the celebration, Jesus, our Messiah, coming into Jerusalem to be our king, right? But does the image of Jesus weeping to you come to mind as he walks into Jerusalem and looks over the city? Does the image... Um, of condemnation and judgment that he brings come to mind as you think about Palm Sunday. Um, Those are two very real things that are connected as well. Um, And we're going to see those in our text this morning. We're going to try to bite off a big chunk. I was, uh, if I could do this whole thing at once, I would do like three chapters of it. But I don't think we want to do three chapters of Matthew in one Sunday. So Um, let's pray and let's uh, jump into this. Um, Dear Lord, as we come to your text this morning, um, we come humbly before you knowing that we are people and we are created by you and we are um, reliant upon you for everything. And um, So as we come to your text, as we come to hear from your word, we just ask, Lord, that we come with humble hearts, we come with understanding minds and eyes and ears to hear, and that your Holy Spirit would move in us and through us and speak through your word. I just pray as I preach that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, I was a bit surprised to find where I ended up with this sermon, but um, we are going to start in the typical Palm, Sur- uh, Palm Sunday text. And So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 21, verse 1, we're going to start in Matthew 21. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find it, find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I think it is true that we often think of prophecy as this supernatural ability to predict the future. Um, And indeed, this is prophecy is one of the things that, um, that is displayed in prophecy. But when we're talking about biblical prophecy, 
We're not just talking about God's ability to know what's going to happen in the future, but we're talking about God's ability to perform his will as he sees fit to create the future. See, God's purposes throughout history are unfolding the way he plans. He isn't just aware of how things are going to unfold, but he is actually in the process of making it happen. If we look at verses 1 through 5, we see that Jesus tells the disciples to go into the village to get this donkey and her colt. And he quotes Isaiah the prophet in Zechariah. And he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. As Matthew explains in verse 4, this was an intentional action, intentional action by Jesus to fulfill what was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning himself. This wasn't just happenstance. This isn't the only time we see this in Matthew. Um, this idea of something being done to fulfill what the prophets say is something that we see throughout Matthew. Um, Jesus intentionally purposed to do these things um, that we see, and it was done according to the Father's will. Um, we can all remember that picture of Jesus in the garden, um, praying to the Lord to remove the cup from him if it was his will, but submitting himself to the Father's will ultimately. So Jesus' actions during his last week on earth um, are a good reminder that God is intentional in making prophecies and he is intentional in fulfilling them. God is faithful to always fulfill his promises and he cares so much about what he says and, and how things are unfolding that he sees fit to make it happen. So he's not idly standing by saying, this is what's going to happen. If it happens, it might. If it doesn't, it might not. I mean, we'll see what happens. Hopefully it happens for the best. No, Jesus is saying, I'm intentionally doing this because this is what the prophet said. So it's a, it's, I found that a little striking that um, it wasn't something that, like Jesus wasn't just a victim. You know, Jesus went to the cross intentionally for us, um, and he had great intentions in doing so. It wasn't just an accident that it happened. So, in verses 6 through 7, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the colt and uh, the colt's mother, and they threw their coats on the colt for him to ride on. Um, so, Jesus was going to ride on this donkey into Jerusalem. He was actually going to ride on the foal, not the mother. Um, as we see in a different passage. Um, this image of Jesus riding to Jerusalem on a donkey is not an accidental side note as well. It wasn't just an incidental part of the story. Jesus told his disciples to do this specifically um, because of what it meant. This is so full of imagery. Um, this, this Jesus riding into, into Jerusalem on a donkey. First of all, it's part of the Messianic prophecy, so the people would see that and recognize that. Um, but the image of a king riding into town on a donkey also meant that he was bringing peace. Um, the king doesn't ride into donkey if he's coming to wage war or coming to um, do something like that, but it's always in peace. And so it says, Behold, your king comes, gentle and mounted on a donkey. The image is full of symbolism of who Jesus is as our Messiah. Jesus is the king who came to bring peace to his people. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, remember 
that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two sides into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross, by having it, by its having put to death the enmity. And he came, came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So, Christ's work of salvation is a work of peace. He brings us into peace with God, and he brings us into peace with one another. It's a redemptive work. Um, yeah, so let's continue in verse 8. Um, in verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The people were literally, literally paving the way for Jesus to come in, throwing their cloaks and palm branches before him. This was a sign of honor and respect for royalty. This isn't something that just happened for Jesus. This was something that was more common to their time that they would have done. This action, along with their chants of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a recital of the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. Now, that's the psalm we read this morning. This shows that the people clearly believed him to be their long-awaited Messiah. In verse 9, it says, the crowds going ahead of him and those that followed were doing this. So this procession was composed primarily of people who were on pilgrimage with Jesus to Jerusalem. Um, this was common during the Passover season for people to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, to have a feast and the festival there. It was likely that many of these were people of Galilee. As you see in verse 11, it says, they made a boast about this being Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, um, which was basically out in the middle of nowhere in their world. This proclamation that they give, this Hosanna, literally means now. As we read our psalm in Psalm 118 this morning, um, if you want to look back there, you can see it says, Lord, save us. It doesn't say Hosanna, but that's literally what it means. That's the translation of it, that word they were using. This is the idea of relying on God for his salvation. Was, this was intrinsically connected to worship of God. In the Old Testament, we see that because God brings salvation to the nation of Israel, because he rescues them, he worships them. Because David is rescued by the Lord, Lord is his fortress, he worships them. And for us, it's even more so now knowing what Christ has gone through for our sake. The response of those who believe Jesus was one of worship. Our Messiah has come in peace to us, and he has made peace with one another through Christ. He came to defeat sin and death on the cross and give us peace through his blood. 
I, th I think that's something we can so easily overlook. Um, that Christ's peace came, that our peace comes through Christ's death. That he was a willing sacrifice for us. The Psalm Palm Sunday message is connected to the cross and Easter Sunday. Um, people didn't know what they were asking for when they were calling for Christ to bring them salvation. Um, so much of our mindset is present to the troubles around us, the troubles we deal with personally in our own lives. And so much of it has to do with our physical place, with our relational, um, with our relationships, and even with our jobs. Um, but God knows better. He knew that we needed more than just some relief from the struggles we go through in life. And so, when we seek peace from God, what are you seeking? Are you seeking peace from the trouble in life that you might go through? Are you seeking peace from unrest? Are you seeking peace from bad relationships? So where are you finding your salvation? Where are you finding your peace? Are you finding it in Christ? Are you finding it in your hope? In, are you putting your hope and insurance in Christ? Or are you putting it in hope that this life would get easier? Remember that this life is only for a moment. Because we still live in a broken world, waiting for the redemption of everything around us. So Christ has already completed the work of spiritual redemption on our behalf. And that carries into eternity, when we will fully experience and enjoy the salvation and peace that Christ brought through us, to us through the Messiah. So I know this is pretty brief, um, going through this text, um, but I feel like, at least I was led to um, the following text, um, to share that with you, because I just feel like so much of what happens next is tied to why Jesus came. Palm Sunday is like this introduction to Jesus' last life on earth, to him continuing his way onto the cross and into the grave, and out of the grave. As we continue, we're going to be continuing through Mark 21. Um, I understand that it would be easy to preach several sermons on this section, but I think it's important to lump these together to get a full view of what this message is. Um, because Palm Sunday is really about Jesus' journey to the cross. And on, as he was making his way to the cross, he was putting things right that were very wrong. So as we continue forward, I want to point out something that we need to be okay with as we make this journey. And that's the idea of condemnation and judgment. Um, for the next three chapters, Jesus rebukes, condemns, and pronounces judgment on the religious rulers of the people. To judge and condemn is extremely important. It is so important for this reason. If Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn, then there's no consequences for the sin and the rejection of him. And if there's no consequences, then why is he going through what he, what he needs to go through? And so we realize that these things go hand in hand. Jesus came to right wrongs, and in doing so, he's the righteous judge. Jesus come, came to bring salvation to all people, but in so doing, he is righteous judge over all creation. He is both savior and judge. It is as righteous judge that Jesus rights what is wrong because he brings to account what is wrong and he restores justice to that has been stripped. So in the rest of chapter 21, as the 
only one who can rightly judge, Jesus restores what is true, true religion and condemns false religion in three ways. So we're going to see that Jesus is restoring what is truly religious and what is false. There's three points that we'll be working through based on the outline of the text. Um, the first point is that Jesus restores true religion through hospitality. The second point is that Jesus condemns those who don't display true faith. And Jesus condemns those who have rejected him and extends salvation to those who accept him. So our first point is that Jesus restores true religion through hospitality. Uh, up in verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you, you are making it a robber's den. So hospitality is this biblical concept that is a bit, a bit different from the concept of hospitality we often think of. We often think about get, um, accepting guests into our house and hosting them and making them feel welcome and at home. And yes, the biblical concept is connected to that idea. However, in the Bible, um, hospitality means that we essentially extend the love that God displayed to us through Jesus to everyone around us that we come into contact with. And that is in all spheres of life and all circumstances. Specifically, this means that we do to strange, towards foreigners and those who are strangers to us um, as God commanded the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to do. If we look at verse 12, we see that the temple is being used as a place of commerce. It's like Jesus has walked into a marketplace. So the religious leaders of the day had set up a system where those who came to the temple, sacrificed without an animal to offer, could buy something. In the Passover week uh, in Jerusalem, the population was about 600% of its normal population. So it was about 20,000 people on average, and during Passover it could be like 120,000, is what the scholars think. And so many of those who made the pilgrimage didn't have something to offer as a sacrifice. And so they had a system where they supplied these things. You could buy a, a sacrifice there. So it provided a solution to those who were in need. The religious leaders had also decided that any foreign currency wasn't acceptable as a temple offering, such as the Roman currency. Um, so again, they came up with a solution. They had a money exchange table. Anyone who didn't have the proper currency could exchange for the proper currency. Again, this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. The problem wasn't that it provided solution to these issues. The problem was that they mistreated the people in God's place of worship in doing so. The leaders of the people had essentially allowed the outer courts of the temple to become this marketplace, a place of commerce. This outer court was known as the court of the Gentiles. Anyone who was a follower of God but not a Jew could come into this area and pray. But they had taken this space away from them. They had taken this place of worship away from them. Not only did they take away their worship space, but they allowed dishonest exchange of money to take place with the money exchangers. They would charge excessive rates in order to make a profit off those who needed to exchange money. They had turned the temple into a den of robbers. But this wasn't the only way the religious leaders were inhospitable to their people. If we pick it up in verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. These verses paint a portrait of the between Jesus and the religious leaders. The ministry of Jesus was marked by hospitality and compassion. We can see that throughout his healings and miracles and eating and dining with sinners. We see here that Jesus heals the blind who come to him. The leaders, on the other hand, wouldn't even allow the blind and lame into the Jewish court of the temple because they weren't fit. They had to stay with the Gentiles, even if they were Jewish, because they were unfit to worship because they were not whole. They had created a religious system that was thoroughly based on the appearance of things and had neglected what God had called them to do, which was to shepherd and care for the flock. This is further driven home when Jesus sees the response to the children shouting praises to Jesus. As you may know, children were seen as an afterthought in that culture. Um, Children were to be seen and not heard. And it is only fitting that Jesus welcomes the children to himself. In his response to their indignation to the children shouting praises of worship to Jesus, he basically quotes Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise to the Lord for his creation. In doing so, by quoting this scripture, Jesus says, yes, the psalmist is talking about me. The children are giving praise to me, except he does not say so explicitly. The leaders of the people had replaced the hospitality to which God called his people with rules and regulations they had come up with and through their, through their interpretation of the law. They were much more concerned with the outward appearance than they were with shepherding the people of God. If you want to see some examples of those, you can read Matthew 23, where Jesus basically has a diatribe against the Pharisees and the way they act. We're going to turn to Matthew 9.10 briefly, if you want to go there. If not, you can listen. In Matthew 9.10, it says, this, Then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. So they were so intent, these religious leaders were so intent in keeping themselves unstained and making sure the people were unstained according to their rules that they lost sight of what God called them to do, which was love people. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So what does it mean to keep yourself unstained from the world? Certainly it doesn't mean the rejection of those who live around us, because Jesus welcomed them, and they said to take care of widows and orphans. It doesn't mean the rejection of those who are in sin. It also doesn't mean that if you follow all the rules and do all the right things, that you're doing well. Look at the people Jesus is condemning. 
If you read Leviticus, you're reading basically something that they had memorized to a T, and they knew all the details of. They knew all the rules and the laws of the Lord. They had it memorized. And that's pretty much, that's insane that anyone would want to memorize Leviticus. Um, They had all the motions down. They could do everything perfect. And yet they were condemned by both Jesus and John the Baptist as being a brood of vipers. So what does it mean to keep yourself clean and unstained from the world? Can anyone guess? You can't. (laughs) True religion has always been about loving God and his people as Tim so often says. We show God in our our love for him by obeying him. But it has been the same throughout history, from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, all the way to Jesus' time and our time now. The truth has been that we're fully reliant upon the grace and mercy of God. We can never do enough. And that's why Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice, because nothing else was going to do it. In attempting to be unstained by the world and present themselves perfect before God and all the people, the leaders had neglected to follow the very command God had given them, which was to love God and to love people. It's those who don't see themselves clearly that look at individuals living in obvious sin and shake their heads. And I can relate to that. Our only response... fallen sinners (laughs) should be repentance and worship and gratitude to God for his abundant mercy and grace in sending Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for us. And then our response to this should be, Lord, show me the mercy and grace that you have shown me, or give me the mercy and grace you have shown me, because I know that I'm a worthless sinner. And let me extend that to everyone around me. It is so easy to shake our head and wag our finger. And it is easy to leave our place of humility and repentance before God and take self-righteousness upon ourselves. So we see that Jesus condemns the religious leaders for their prioritization of their own religiosity over the love of his people. So Jesus brings restoration to us through his hospitality for all of us. The next thing we see is that Jesus condemns those who don't display true faith. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except the leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. 
So we must not miss the placement of this scene in the context of the surrounding passage. This isn't some anecdote or side lesson that Jesus is just teaching here. Matthew has placed it here for a reason. Jesus, in this context, is addressing the failings of the religious leaders. So we have this image of Jesus and his disciples walking back to Jerusalem, and along the way, Jesus gets hungry and sees a fig tree. As what was common in that time, if you were a traveler and you were along the road and you found a tree with fruit or a plant with some sort of produce, you were allowed to pick something off and eat it um, if you were hungry. If you read the same account in Mark, he adds that it wasn't the season for figs. So why did Jesus condemn the fig tree for this? Although it was not the season for figs, for fully grown figs, the type of figs that you might eat if you were to buy one in the store, whenever a tree was in leaf in the spring, there was always a first fruit, which was this bitter, uh, more acidic fig that you, was still edible and was still good for nourishment. Jesus, he cursed the tree for showing leaves but having no fruit. And this imagery that he uses, uses cannot be missed. The fig tree is used throughout scripture as an image of Israel. And in this passage, we see that Jesus is rebuking the leaders of Israel for bearing no fruit to go with their false display of godliness. Their time as spiritual leaders of Israel is coming to an end. The response of the disciples to what Jesus did, however, is a little interesting considering they've seen all the miracles he's already performed. Um, but Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to talk about what true faith in God looks like. MacArthur says, A miracle on such a cosmic scale was precisely what the scribes and Pharisees wanted Christ to do. But he always declined. Here we, he was speaking figuratively, figuratively about the immeasurable power of God and unleashed in the lives of those with true faith. When it comes to faith and prayer, it's always about the object of our faith, isn't it? not our ability to conjure up some result based on our earnestness. Faith is always about the object. And so true faith will always be fully reliant upon God and is tied to his will, not a will that's opposed to his. In Matthew 12, 38, we see what kind of faith the religious leaders really have. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth of, or heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in this generation at the, with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus has already rebuked them many times and he has rebuked them for their lack of faith. Ultimately, we're going to see that they reject him and his resurrection. So what kind of faith do we have? Is, it, is the object of our faith Jesus or is it more about our actions what does our fruit display? When our actions display our own self-righteousness and hypocrisy and aren't marked by what Jesus and what isn't marked by what Jesus wants. 
So our next point is that Jesus brings condemnation to those who reject him and extends salvation to those who accept him. Um, so picking up in verse 23, he says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from above, or was it from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, he said, They said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus obviously had created quite the commotion the, day before, the days prior. Um, he had entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which was not normal. He created this big ruckus of celebration for him. And then he was healing in the temple. He turned over the tables. Um, it was obvious that the Pharisees were going to confront him at some point. And so this confrontation wasn't necessarily weird. This wasn't out of the normal. But in the way that they did it was out of the normal because they were questioning Jesus' authority. It was often um, done by the religious leaders where they would come to each other in the public eye and ask each other theological questions or questions about scripture and they'd have debates and discussions. And the public loved it. They would eat it up and so did the religious leaders because it was an opportunity for them to express how well they knew scripture. Uh, how, how well versed they were. But in this instant, Jesus turns the table on them. Instead of answering the question the way they were hoping, he asked them a question. In response, they had a conundrum. They couldn't answer honestly, because if they were to answer honestly, the people would be angry with them. And they couldn't say the other. They couldn't say Jesus or John's um, ministry was from heaven. Because if they said that, that would be to admit that Jesus' ministry was from heaven. Because John paved the way for Jesus. There was really no way for them to win this one. So instead they gave the lamest answer anyone ever gives, which is, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm sure they looked not so good in front of the people, because they're Pharisees, they're supposed to know all the answers. Um, you have this group of men who are supposed to be your spiritual leaders. Not to say that every spiritual leader is supposed to know all answers. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but you have this group of men who are supposed to be your leaders, and they can't figure out this one guy. Um, but what Jesus here is, he displays the answer for them, and for everyone, really, who has the eyes to see. Because what he first does is he, ex he exposes their true belief about John. And answering, I don't know, they're really saying they didn't believe it. Because either you believe it or you don't, they were just making a cop-out. And secondly, they got the answer from Jesus that they wanted, but not in the way they wanted. They wanted to be able to catch Jesus in a trap, but instead Jesus gave them the answer they wanted in a way that wasn't to, to their ability to do so. Um, as if their embarrassment in this situation wasn't enough though Jesus got really explicit with them in the following passages in the parables that follow there's three parables 
Jesus specifically calls them out for their hypocrisy and the rejection of God's message and messengers. Um, I'm not going to work through all the parables in depth because that would take forever. And it's not going to be an hour and a half long sermon. So um, I'm going to summarize the three parables that follow. The first one is often referred to as the parable of the two sons. Essentially what this parable is showing is that the religious leaders have shown that they are false in their religiosity. And instead, it will be those, who, those obvious sinners who come before God in repentance who enter the kingdom of God, not those with pretense. The second parable, this parable of the vineyard and the, those who are taking care of the, the Lord's vineyard, um, is about the religious leaders. It says the religious leaders have shown that they have not taken care of God's people the way he intended, and instead they have rejected, abused, and killed all his messengers, and ultimately killed his son, Jesus. Jesus, however, as we see in verse 42, is the chief cornerstone that was prophesied in Psalm 118. And on him, the church God's people will be built. Those who reject Jesus will be judged and condemned by Jesus. That's what this parable is teaching at the end. And then the third parable is the parable of the wedding feast. The leaders have shown that they have flat out rejected the invitation of salvation, even waging war against the one who delivered this invitation. Their end is destruction. And so you have three parables basically calling out their leadership as a whole. Um, basically re reiterating the things we read through in the previous passages. And Jesus does this to basically tell them exactly what he thinks and exactly what message he has to give to them, but in a parabolic way, so because it was not yet his time to be arrested. And in doing so, he also does it before the people. If the people are understanding of Scripture, they would understand what he was talking about. There's a lot of imagery that's used here that's really good that I can't explain. Um, but the bottom line is this. In light of what we've looked at today, um, you can pretend all you want that you have it all together. Um, you can attempt to run things the way you see fit, according to the way you believe it to be. But ultimately, if you reject Jesus, there's only one end, and he will reject you. And against the all-powerful, all-just, and all-righteous judge of the universe, we don't stand a chance. Our end is destruction. So this is really heavy stuff. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem was a celebration from the people. And Jesus basically brings a message of condemnation. He can't get away from it, because that's what he talks about in the three chapters that follow this entry into Jerusalem. But the good thing about Palm Sunday is that he is the long-awaited Messiah. <laughs> and he really did come, and he is our Savior. And he is the King who brings peace. And salvation and peace can only be found in him, not in ourselves. It's not in our good works, not in our own personal self-righteous actions, behaviors, or display, but only by the work of Jesus in and through us. Because we know that our righteousness is like filthy rags before him, before a holy and righteous God. So if the religious leaders of Israel could be so wrong, what does that say about us if we present ourselves before God as we are? 
Like who, whatever we're trying to do, we all need Jesus. So, in closing, Hosanna, Lord save us. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, I am humbled by this passage. Um, I can see myself in a lot of this. I hope that we all are challenged by what we read today, knowing that even when we start to feel good about ourselves and we get comfortable in life, Lord, we are fully in need of you. We are fully in need of Jesus. Um, we just pray that as we live our lives before you, that we do so in humility and submission to you, that we do so in full worship and honor of you and not ourselves. And I just pray for encouragement for all of us, knowing that you know, a world that is lost without Jesus, a person that is lost without Jesus truly is in dire circumstances. But if we fully put our trust in you, we have full life and assurance and joy and peace. And so I just pray, Lord, as we, as we go through about our week and in this next week leading into Easter, that we would fully immerse ourselves um, in the knowledge that you have paved the way for us, you fully um, paid for our sins that we could not pay for. You were fully perfect in a way that we could never come close to. Um, and you have brought peace with God and peace with one another through the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.